0: Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have a fascinating and extra special guest. David Snyderman has put together an incredible career in fixed income, alternative credit and really just an amazing way of looking at risk and trade structure and how to figure out probabilistic potential outcomes rather than playing the usual forecasting and macro tourist game. He is global head of alt credit and fixed income and managing partner at Magnetar. They have an incredible track record. They've put together a string of huge, huge returns Uh, They are not like any other fund that you'll hear me talk about. They're pretty unique and specific in the world. I found this conversation to be fascinating. And even though we kind of wander off into the weeds of private credit, it's so informative and so interesting. Um, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. With no further
2: ado, my discussion with Magnetar's David Snyderman. Thank you very much for having me, Barry. I really appreciate it, and I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation.
1: I am also. I'm very familiar with Magnetar and, and its history. It's really a fascinating firm in so many ways. Let's start, though, talking a little bit about your background. You, you grow up in suburban New Jersey, and then you head
2: to St. Louis for college. Tell us a little bit about where you went and what you studied. Sure. I grew up in Freehold, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So most people know home of Bruce Springsteen. You know, my focus coming out of high school was playing football. I wanted to play football at the highest level I could. You are not much bigger than me. What made you think you could uh, play on the gridiron? I don't know why I thought I could, but I definitely (laughs) thought I could at the time. And so I wanted to play at the highest level possible. My parents were much more focused on an academic institution, and so WashU sort of met both criteria. Did you play ball in college? I did, all four years. It was a lot of fun. What position did you play? I played strong safety. And yeah, Division Three was the highest level I could play at, but, but I loved it. Right. So safety, you have to be pretty fast. and. uh that was the issue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but for that, you would have gone pro. There you go. Um, what did you study at uh, WashU? WashU back then was, um, it was a great, they had a great medical school and they still do today. And in my family, being a doctor was the highest level of achievement. Mm-hmm. So I had, a, I had an older sister starting medical school and I had a relative that is actually the dean of Duke Medical School. So I had this nice glide path to be a doctor. Right. So I started off pre-med. But I didn't end pre-med. I found out quickly that's not what I wanted to do. The hardest part is telling my parents and especially my grandparents, you know, no more pre-med. So I switched to be an economics major. I graduated economics with uh with a lot of coursework in accounting and finance. Huh. Interesting. So you come out of college, you go to
1: uh Pricewaterhouse Cooper and then Coke Industries, where you're focusing on convertible securities, merger ARM and, and special situations. Uh, how do you get from medical school to that? What what was the career plan?
2: Yeah, my path was certainly non-traditional. I didn't go to one of the East Coast Ivy League schools knowing I wanted to go to Wall Street. I didn't even know what Wall Street, work on Wall Street meant at the time. So for me, it was much more around, you know being around fantastic people and really taking advantage of opportunities. So like you said, I started at Waterhouse and I went through a one-year rotation there. So it started with audit, so I saw many companies, then tax, then financial services, so it was a great training ground to understand how you know theoretics went, went into the practical business. From there, I went to Coke Industries and I had a great experience at Coke. I was there five years. I worked in three different places for them. So I started in Houston, Texas, and I worked on their natural gas business. Then this opportunity came up in Switzerland. So it's a 13,000 person company, and there were gonna be five people in Switzerland to manage about several hundred million dollars, more in cash optimization. So I had the opportunity to be a junior person there. I'd never left the US before, uh-huh. so I was sat in the middle of Switzerland and uh, sat there for two years and, and worked in that business and then went to Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas was the home office, and there were sort of a dozen of us, very simply situated, you know, all young and hungry. But they had great management at Coke. They really encouraged us to to start businesses. So I remember writing the merger our business plan there, mm-hmm. right? And then implementing the business. So a quick fun fact about about Coke. At Magnetar today, we have three of my prior bosses that you know from Coke. So so it's pretty neat. But to answer your question, like I had a lot of broad experiences by the time I was in my mid-20s but no real direction on what my career was gonna be. Where in Switzerland? Was it Geneva or somewhere it was, else? It was Fribourg, so a town 20 minutes from Bern, it was a tax-free canton. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I was in a town that spoke you know, half French and half German, and, and I spoke English, so. There you go. But no taxes, no income taxes. No income taxes for the company.
1: And, and then Coke Industries, I, I, I don't think a lot of people realize, one of the largest private companies in the United States
2: and maybe even the largest, their they're giant, energy powerhouse. What, what else does Coke do? Yeah, so when I was there, they had 13,000 people, and that was before they bought Georgia Pacific. I think now it's probably 35,000 people. Immense. It, it's immense. And so they have, they have many, many different business lines there. For me, I sat mostly in their internal, really an internal hedge fund. So it was their excess cash. They borrowed money at live bid at the time. So they borrowed money very cheaply. And our job was to make money on that money. So you end up as head of global credit and senior
1: managing director at Citadel Investment Group. Was that right from Coke Industries? That was. Seven years at Citadel. That's supposed to be uh, a tough shop to work at. What was your experience like there?
2: It was the perfect job for me at the time. So I always thought I worked at a high level of intensity. Right. right? But when I got there, I realized I was one of many. Right. But I had the opportunity to work for a gentleman, Dave Bunning. He was one of the original few handful of people that that started at Citadel. And Dave was fantastic in so many different ways, a great leader, a great investor, but really a great person. And he took me under his wing there. It was a lot of work, but a lot of formidable lessons came out of my time there. Right, so the first one that I think about is the investing business itself is an operating business. So we really have to understand what we're gonna invest in, value everything in the universe, Mm -hmm. Rank order them and then only can we put together portfolios. And the second, and this is very credit specific, was when you own a credit portfolio, you're short volatility. So what that simply means is if you have a dislocation, you're going to lose a lot of money. Uh And so to put together credit portfolios, we have to find hedges that offset that short volatility. So really learning the value of options. Right, was, was probably the biggest lesson coming out of Citadel.
1: So I want to rephrase that for, for some of the less option and, and vol savvy members of the audience. When we buy fixed income, we just want it to be steady and pay a dividend and not swing up and down. And if it does swing up and down, the odds are it's not in your favor. That volatility you can look at as an insurance product. If if the volatility goes up, hey, we can make a bet that will offset the drawdown in the bonds. That that's exactly right. All right. And and you've, you you uh, at Citadel, you were running a convertible bond and credit trading desk is
2: that that what you eventually ended up as head of global credit? That's correct. I started there on the convertible bond arbitrage desk and then we started capital structure arbitrage which meant we were you know, buying or selling credit, and and against that, buying and selling equities, and finally, we consolidated that together, and and I ran that business for for Ken and Citadel,
1: and, and some of the folks, Ken being Ken Griffin, when people say Citadel is a lot of work, you don't realize there's a whole nother
2: gear you have to move into and it's next level. Was that your experience? It was, and and for me, I actually loved that part of Citadel. It was 16-hour days and it was six or seven days a week, but you really got to learn the financial markets there.
1: Huh, interesting. So Magnetar launches in 2005 with some capital, and you joined, you you weren't one of the original founders, but you
2: joined not long afterwards. That's correct. So uh, Alec Littlewitz and Ross Lazar founded the firm and you know i did join the day we launched our our main fund now for me alec was a known quantity he ran equities at citadel mm-hmm. uh, with dave bunning my my uh my prior boss there and then when i moved up into dave's spot alec moved out and and they started and he spent i think two years at a non compete and then started started magnetar him and ross lazar co-founded the firm and they had a vision to co-found the firm and I bought into the vision immediately. And Alec always did a great job of of laying it out. right. And first was, we're gonna have a culture of collaboration. So back then, you, you probably remember in 2005, you know, there were a lot of what they called pod shops, so they'd give individual asset allocation right. to people and they'd go invest their money. This was gonna be a multi-strategy vehicle, so we'd have credit, we'd have equities, we'd have hedge fund strategies but with no silos. So we're going to work together and put best opportunities into the portfolio. So you have people from Coke Industries with you. You have people from Citadel.
1: Did those prior employees have a piece of you guys? Did they seed you? Did they invest
2: you? Or was it just a clean break and we're off on our own? It was a clean break. And, and Ross Lazar came from... The fund of funds world, and he was the primary money raiser and business builder there, and so he did a fantastic job. I think with we the largest launch of 2005, with about 2.3 billion dollars. How long did it take you to get up and running where you felt,
1: oh, this is really uh, all the pieces are in place?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, and funny, funny you asked that question because we talk about it often uh, around Magnetar. You know, I started and I I hired three or four people that I started with and ross lazar right and again he's a he's a my partner my close friend right and a a great business builder two weeks into it he came to me and said what's the first investment like when are you going to start investing (laughs) and i said to ross look we we're going to build the systems and infrastructure to prepare to invest first and I need a computer and an internet line, and maybe a trader to, to help us out. That's exactly what what Ross was saying, and he <laughs> he very politely said to me, you know, you're here to invest, not to build software. And so he, I think he stopped by my my desk for the next nine months, every single day, and asked the same question. But it truly took us nine months to build the systems and infrastructure just to be investment ready. Wow, that's amazing, nine months. And I have to ask why
1: Evanston in Illinois? I mean, I like Lou Malnati's and Superdog as much as the next guy, but why the middle of the Illinois suburbs,
2: the Chicago suburbs? Yeah, so it was just north of the city and it's across the street from Northwestern. So that would be the draw. You know, the train lines end there so you can recruit people from, from the city. But it, it was probably a little more selfish. Like we all lived on the North Shore of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so it was an easy commute for us to work and so that, that's where we started the firm.
1: And that is really a lovely part of the world on the lake. It's such a manageable, easy city to operate within.
2: I mean, the winters are a little cold, but still it's a lovely place. It's a great quality of life in Chicago and outside of Chicago. So only a few years later, we're right in the teeth of the great financial crisis. How did you guys navigate that? We were very fortunate, and and we performed quite well in our credit strategies, which which certainly we can talk about. We had both long and short uh, credit products, and we had we had a long volatility position, meaning meaning we protected the balance sheet very well if there was a dislocation. And I think that went back to some some of the prior lessons from from prior firms. Like we really need to have portfolios that we protect the balance sheet and make sure that that were able to stand up in in difficult environments.
1: I have noticed that a lot of firms that describe themselves as hedge funds really aren't very hedged. You
2: guys operated pretty fully hedged it most of the time, right? We really did, And, and the systems and infrastructure we built were not only to measure risk, but to manage that risk. And so we'd find good investments both on the long and short side, so even if you have a position that, that's long,
1: you have an offsetting or matching position? Or do you just hedge out that long position with a, a short bet?
2: So there's a quality of earnings question embedded in, in, I think, what you said, and that's we're trying not to take macro-level bets. Those, for us, are low-quality bets. And so what we're trying to take is idiosyncratic bets, meaning we're focused on one factor and we're betting on that factor. Then we're going to hedge out all of the macro risks around the portfolio. Huh, really interesting.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QB join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: So we were talking about you guys launched a few years right before the financial crisis. I want to talk about a couple of trades from that era. Perhaps most famously, you guys put on a CDO bet, uh, uh, a collateralized debt obligation bet that was designed to do well if housing made some extreme moves. And it was non-directional. It was hedged.
2: Tell us a little bit about the Magnetar CDO bet from the financial crisis. I talked about setting up the infrastructure to prepare to invest. And we looked at every asset class. So we looked at at corporates. We looked at mortgages. We looked at credit cards. And what we found in the mortgage market is something you don't read about in textbooks. Mm -hmm. We found that we could invest on the long side in what they call the equity piece or the most risky piece of, of a CDO. Right. And we could short the next level up, so the mezzanine piece. And we could short two or three times the amount. But what was super interesting was we were getting paid to hold an option. That that never happens. Right.
1: Options cost you money, and that's the old
2: joke. Uh, option traders never die; they just expire worthless. That's exactly right. In this case, we were going to hold an option that we were going to get paid fifteen to twenty percent a year to hold. Oh, up. really? That's real money. So, so you never see that, and you never read about that. But that's the way the market set up. It was just too fragmented. You had people that were willing to buy pieces of of these structured products because of the ratings, and on things that weren't rated, no one was willing to buy. So we took the other side of that of that trade, so
1: you bought the unrated portions and you shorted the rated portions. That's correct. Huh, that's very contrarian. That's very interesting. How did you identify that opportunity?
2: That's such a talk about idiosyncratic niche trades. H- how did you figure that out? The firm was built on finding white spaces. And so I remember back back in two thousand and five when we first started, you know, we'd think about the banks. The banks would have, an equity trading desk and they'd have a debt desk. And they both value the same companies and both sides of the firm would value them completely differently. And so for us, those are exactly the opportunities we were looking for. But we didn't find it in the corporate markets. We found it in the mortgage market. It was so fragmented that the machine that sold rated products hit all the right buyers, but no one could sell the unrated piece. The unrated piece yielded 20, 25%, where the rated piece would yield 3 to 5%. And so that difference was was the arbitrage that we saw. So heading into 05-06, we saw real estate peak in, I want to say
1: in in volume in 05 and price in 06. Um, so if you're getting paid fifteen, twenty percent to hold the unrated piece, isn't there a lot of downside risk that, hey, if some of these mortgages go south, you could see, you know, you
2: get cut in half or worse. That's exactly right. And so what our what the modeling actually said though is if nothing happens in the world, we make this 20 percent return, but if, if anything happened, not only would our equity piece suffer, but the short side or our mezzanine pieces would make the money back. And that's the ratio and then so. that's the ratio we had to be on. Mm-hmm. So what they call that is delta neutral in the options world, right? So we had a, we were hedging an option, and that hedge made us a lot of money in downside in downside scenarios, but that was never the focus. We didn't know the housing market would crash. We had no idea. What we had was a trade or an investment that we'd make 20% a year on. And if anything happened in the world, we've really protected the balance sheet. It just qu- happened quite quickly. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on
1: today, especially in, in some of the uh, uh, private alternative spaces. You've talked about pensions are now facing illiquidity issues. Because private equity and venture capital have gates up,
2: a lot, a lot of long-term tie-ups. Uh, how has this affected your business? Yeah, that's been the most challenging part of the business. Really? So it really has. And, and pension funds, they're on hold today. They're, they're not investing. And it's been not just a headwind for us, but for the entire industry. So I'll step back and I'll, I'll give you my view on it. So pensions have this, this mandate They have a diversified portfolio they invest in. They receive cash flow from the portfolio, and that supports their retiree benefits. So they're always making this judgment, will I produce enough cash to to manage those liabilities? What happened over the last year and a half or so is rates went up and valuations went down. Mm -hmm. Now, the handshake agreement with with the venture firms and the private equity firms was give them a dollar today, and in five years, they'll give you back two or three dollars, right. right? depending on how the, how the fund did. They've stopped giving back that capital today. Oh, really? And so the pension funds are faced with this illiquidity problem. And so they're borrowing money against their portfolios. They're selling positions in their portfolios. But what they're not doing is taking on new investments. Hmm. Now, there's a flip side to this. Whenever we, we have trouble raising capital, the investment opportunities are usually very good. Right. So our pipeline is extremely robust today. Huh, that, that's really intriguing. Do
1: you see this across the board or is it really just more generalized that when you have uh, the dislocation of 500 plus basis points in
2: 18 months, what does that do to the landscape? It always changes the landscape. And so no one's ever prepared for moves of that size even though everyone says says they are. And so it's um, opportunities that, that have come out of this mainly around the banks today Right. And so so we can talk a little bit more about that. Well, let's let's talk a bit
1: about Magnetar has more of a specialty finance focus than other credit managers. Tell us about that. And how has the shift in rates impacted specialty finance? Yeah
2: so after the after the GFC these private credit markets really developed and they went in two different directions they went in direct lending right and so 90% of the market went direct lending mm-hmm. so that's going to middle market companies and disintermediating the banks and lending directly to them for us we went in a different direction we went in specialty finance and specialty finance is is a bit smaller but it's been around for ages and it touches our lives every day. D- define it if you would. Yeah, so it's it's the cars we drive, so auto loans, it's the houses we buy or rent, so it's mortgages, it's the podcasts that we stream, right? So it's, it's all the music royalties and streaming royalties. So it's it's assets like that. Hmm. And the interesting part about these assets is there's a very strong investment thesis around them because they have three attributes. When combined together that most other asset classes don't have and certainly i don't think direct lending has so the first is you can find very stable payoff profiles uh-huh. second you can find assets or these payoff profiles that don't correlate to the overall market so you're not worried about them moving with the s p or the high yield index right and third and most importantly they don't correlate to one another and so i'll give you an example of a three asset portfolio So in our music royalty portfolio, returns could be driven by an artist's song downloads like Taylor Swift downloads. And in our solar finance portfolio, it's by how much sunlight there is in a particular region. Or lately, we've been lending a lot against NVIDIA GPUs for cloud usage, and that's driven by AI and machine learning growth. If I think about just those three assets, they shouldn't correlate to to the S&P, but they certainly shouldn't correlate to one another. That's how we can really produce a high quality of earnings for our investors.
1: Really interesting. You mentioned banks earlier. Um, I know that Magnetar has had opportunities to partner with banks via what some people call reg cap transactions.
2: Tell us a little bit about those. So reg cap, or some people call them significant risk transfer transactions, Mm -hmm. that is a massive opportunity for credit funds today. And so a lot of people would think that the banks are selling assets. Right? But in our experience, we're seeing them efficiently transfer the credit risk of assets, but keeping the customer relationship. It's a very important distinction. H- how do you do that? Either you have the asset
1: and the credit risk, I would imagine, or if you don't, if it's a mortgage, you sell the mortgage and you're out.
2: How do you have uh, how are you a little bit pregnant? Exactly. So the solution to that are these regulatory capital solutions. And so you're taking a portfolio of credit risk, and you're transferring that credit risk to a private credit fund like us, but maintaining the customer relationship. And what what banks I think eminently realize is the customer relationship is is how they drive revenues. So traditional banking, FX, advisory services, you know, high net worth. And so without that, they start to lose their franchise. This is the product that, that allows them to transfer credit risk. And for private credit firms, we all of a sudden have access to some of their highest quality lending. right? It's It's, it's the, been the fastest growing part of our portfolio. So I'm trying to figure out, if they're
1: transferring the credit risk to you, I'm assuming you're taking some sort of contract with the bank that you're going to assume the liability if X happens, and then you, with your expertise, are hedging out that risk through your options or... Uh, credit desk. Yeah. And
2: and that's exactly right. But importantly, the first thing we're doing is we're using data to really understand what the credit risk is. And with that data, then we can start thinking about what the the likely hedges are for the macro risk of the portfolio. So so let's talk about that.
1: What is your approach to data? How do you institutionalize data management? and, And how do you leverage the idea of, hey, we know a lot about this.
2: Here's how we monetize it. People talk a lot about the importance of data, but it's usually in a different context. It's usually for these quantitative strategies or quantitative hedge funds. For us, data is the lifeblood of of specialty finance. So for us, we use data to solidify our assumptions. What we do with the data is we forecast the performance of assets Mm -hmm. by matching statistically significant characteristics. So back to the, the red cap examples, We've looked at hundreds and hundreds of these types of, of investments, and we've taken all the data from those transactions. Now when we look at a new transaction, a bank comes to us and says, I need to produce more regulatory capital on this 100 to 10,000 loans. We can take the characteristics of their portfolio today and out of sample price them through history. Mm. That helps us price the credit, right, and understand what risk we're taking on. So this is really fairly sophisticated financial
1: engineering that is, it sounds like it's a way for the banks to meet the SEC requirements, the increased post-financial crisis financial reserves that they're required to have, but not have to sell off big
2: parts of the business and not have to sell off the relationships you described. I think that's exactly right and, and even when you get to what happened earlier in 2023 with Credit Suisse that again put pressure on the banks to really to really think about how they're going to hedge their credit risk this is their hedge to credit risk. And then related to the way you guys work with data management tell us a little bit about Magnetar Labs. Yeah, Magnetar Labs has been a great initiative for us. It's really the institutionalization of our data. So we're trying to produce infrastructure where we can ingest large data sets very quickly and not only use them in specific business lines, but use it across business lines. So I'll give you a few examples. In our merger arbitrage business, we've tracked every detail and every characteristic of every merger and acquisition for the last 20 plus years. Wow. And even our recent restaurant finance business, we have itemized bills of every customer. This is really useful data. So here's an example from just a couple of months ago. We were looking at an auto loan transaction and the servicer tried to overload information. So they gave us 80 million line items of information. On purpose or? Uh, I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but 80 million line items, 100 different files, you know, 40 gigabytes of memory. So that's far too much for like, Excel to handle or any local Python. Right. Right. Overload it overload to any one machine. But our MagTar Labs team was able to take that in in just minutes. Right. Now we can analyze the data. And then look at look at the attributes to that investment and see if it fits in our portfolio. We well, we actually made the made the investment. So so what sort of
1: hardware are you using? Is this all cloud based? Is this a I I think of like oh, sounds like a
2: mainframe. I don't even know if mainframes still exist yeah, anymore. everything's gone to the cloud now. Right, I mean it, it it is pretty amazing. And
1: that sort of distributed computer has no ceiling, essentially no capacity. Uh, correct. Infinite capacity. Correct. Huh, really really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the status quo. I, I read something where you said it was important to not maintain the status quo. Explain what that means.
2: We're not efficient market theorists, but we certainly believe that in the medium to long term, the markets are efficient. Kind of mostly eventually efficient. Um, eventually efficient, right? So we know that what works today may not work several years forward, mm-hmm. right? And so I'll give you the converts example. Like you, like you mentioned, I've been in the convert market for 30 years now. And sometimes converts are very cheap, you know, convertible bond arbitrage. And when they are, we have a lot of our portfolio in it. But today, we have less than 1% of our portfolio in the asset class. And it's just because it, it's not cheap or not cheap enough versus what we can invest in. And
1: is the expectation is that whatever inefficiencies were there the market's figured it out it's arbitrage it away and the odds are against that ever becoming really
2: cheap or might it you know uh, become a trade again yeah some of it's supply demand mm-hmm. right and uh, driven but i think the most important part is we're not hiring desks of people to stay in an asset class uh-huh. that's the status quo that's not what we're looking for we're looking to aggressively rotate our capital to get to the optimal portfolio, to get to the best risk-adjusted return. So does this
1: mean you're exploring new business areas and strategies, or is it just that you're rolling through the various other opportunities that that you've um, fished in before?
2: Yeah, it, it's a good question. We maintain our diligence on other strategies, but we always have a strong research and development pipeline. Huh, re- really interesting. So let's talk about some of the
1: things that, that are going on Today, artificial intelligence, AI, dominated the the 2023 narrative. You made investments in CoreWeave, a specialized cloud provider. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that
2: space. Is that related at all to what we talked about earlier with Magnetar Labs? Yeah, CoreWeave is, is such an exciting story for Magnetar. I can't say enough good things about it. Sometimes the stars just align. You have the right time, the right product, the right team. And for the listeners that don't know who CoreWeave is, Core is the largest owner of GPUs outside of the hyperscalers like Google or Amazon Web Services. They sell is high performance compute, which is sort of the picks and shovels to enable AI. Mm-hmm. So if you are a new, you know, AI lab, you need somebody like CoreWeave to host that specialized cloud for you. Now we were the first institutional investor, so. All the way back in in 2020. And at that point, Corey, have had just $26 million of top line revenue. And I think we were the first firm to really get comfortable lending against that asset called high performance compute. Mm-hmm. Right? So they've had explosive growth. But what we haven't been is just a capital provider. We've really been a partner to them within the business. Are you guys also a customer of theirs? We're a customer of theirs in Magnetar Labs, just like, just like you, you intimated before. And so we use them for Magnetar Labs. But we have Ernie Rogers, our COO, sits on their board. We have daily interaction between our management teams. This company is growing so quickly. They need all all the help they can get around them. And what we try to help with is mostly balance sheet management.
1: So for a firm that specializes in in credit, this almost sounds like a venture investment.
2: There are parts of this that that are venture-ish. But what's interesting is the underlying asset, this high-performance compute, is something that we can really scale with. And so I think that's been the innovation in the marketplace. So you mentioned in 2023 on the venture side, we actually led a round for them, a $400 million Series B round, but we also led a $2.3 billion financing on their high-performance compute assets. So it's
1: capital and credit. It's, it's equity and
2: credit. It's equity and credit, and it's a true partnership between the firms. You know, Towards the end of last year, you know, in December, the firm got valued at $7 billion. And wow. To me, it's just a start. This company, just the... You're just going to see it continue to grow over time.
1: Well, let me know about the C round when that comes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um,
2: What What do you guys, in all seriousness, what are you guys looking
1: for? What sort of characteristics are you looking for when a company like this comes along? You mentioned idiosyncratic types of investment. This sounds very
2: specific and not all that usual. It is. It's very specific, but we always start with the assets. So it's assets, it's data, and it's structure, right? So first on the assets we're usually focused on specialty finance because the assets drive the performance of the company, uh-huh. right? The next thing we need is data. We can't predict the future. So what we're trying to do is use historical data to predict how an asset reacts in different states of the economy. Mm-hmm. And finally, we use structure around that to protect the downside of the investment itself.
1: Huh, so- sounds really intriguing. So, So as long as we're talking about 2023, We saw a lot of bank failures last year. We saw, you know, the response to a a rapid increase in rates. You had a front row seat to what transpired. Share what that was like and and what did you guys see in in the space? Tell us about the opportunities that came up from those events.
2: Those were stressful events for the entire community. You know, for Silicon Valley Bank in particular, I remember it was Friday night and the question of moral hazard appeared. appeared immediately, right. so it's California-based. Right, it was a lot of venture funds that had accounts there, and the questions started coming out. A is their cash safe? Will they be able to access it? If so, when? You know, will they be able to make payroll? A lot of these smaller companies were very right. worried about payroll, and in California specifically, will the board of directors be liable if they couldn't make payroll? And then they started rolling it out to what about all the similarly situated banks? So we all know that by Monday morning, the contagion risk was too high and and the government did step in, but the opportunities really arose from that. And so the first opportunity, which is very similar to doing regulatory capital investments with large banks is being a risk capital provider to the small and regional banks. And I think we're gonna see more and more of this over time. It's credit firms partnering with banks where we have access to all the diligence around their customers, and together, we can jointly underwrite and make loans.
1: You, you mentioned moral hazard. Where was the moral hazard with Silicon Valley Bank? Was it the equity investors in the bank? Or was it the customers with you know, way over the FDIC limits? And if there isn't a quarter million or half a million dollar ceiling, did did the Federal Reserve essentially
2: say, okay... FDIC insurance is now unlimited. Is that the moral hazard? We found that to be the moral hazard. Who's the governor of how much risk a bank can take? So the federal government came out and they said, you have a $250,000 limit, but people were putting in $100 million into the account right. because okay. they got 25 basis points more of interest, right? So how do, how do you actually control that? That's the moral hazard we saw. Now, I think at the end of the day, it was just too big of a risk to the economy. The The contagion risk the cont- was- hey, there's a moral hazard question to the depositors, but
1: rather than stand on ceremony, let's stop this before it spreads. That's exactly right. Huh, that, that's, really, that's really kind of intriguing. What else has been the result of this rapid spike in interest rates? What do you see in the private credit world that,
2: hey, blame the Fed, but here, here's what's gone off the rails? Yeah, you, for credit investors, everyone thinks about fixed rate risk. Right? but that's easily hedgeable and that's a choice that, that credit investors make. So for people like Magnetar, we swap everything back to floating rate. We don't have any edge on, on a macro risk like that. But the second order effect is much, much more difficult, and that's the business impact of rates changing. So when you when we think about businesses, we think about, do profit margins change as rates go up or down? Do originations change? What about the refinancing of their debt? I think those are the things that are going to keep lawyers and restructuring advisors very busy for the foreseeable future. So so given this current
1: environment where first rates went up further and faster than it seemed like the consensus amongst analysts was, they stayed higher longer than people expected. Uh, there's no recession. People have been talking about that for two years. And the expected rate cuts, I guess, tied to that recession, haven't showed up yet. We were talking about March. Now we're talking about May, even June of 2024. How does this affect how you think about putting portfolios together, constructing portfolios? And I am very aware that you guys aren't macro tourists. You don't play that game. But given the volatility
2: and the various probabilistic outcomes, how does that impact your thinking? Yeah, it's a very good question. And and for us, we think a lot about the affordability factor. Mm-hmm. So I'll give I'll give you two examples at both extremes. So we have a partial ownership in an auto loan business in Ireland, mm-hmm. and so when rates are at zero, we're loaning to consumers at somewhere between five and a half and six percent, and we're gaining market share rapidly. All of a sudden risk-free rate goes to 5%. That equivalent loan, we're gonna have to charge consumers 11%. It's just, it's simply unaffordable. Right, different calculus, for sure. Different calculus. And so we have a decision to make. We can stay at 11%, keep the same margin, but reduce our origination, or we can take our margin down and try to keep market share. Either way, the business is worth a lot less. Right. That has a lot of affordability factor effect to it. On the other end of the stream is our music royalties business. So in music royalties, you know, the simplification is you get some small part of worldwide streaming revenue, right? So take Spotify, Spotify raised rates recently and they had no customer churn. So some percentage of that rate went directly to the royalty holder. Mm -hmm. There was very little affordability factor. So we're veering away from things that the business impact on affordability is high and we're investing in things where, where it's lower. Private credit seems to be getting a lot of attention these days. Why, why is that? If you would have asked me going into the global financial crisis, I know we keep going back 15 years now, I would have said the banks had it all. Right? They controlled origination of all of the different asset classes, especially finance and lending. So whether it was credit cards or mortgages or loans to, to their customers. But after the, at the, as the financial crisis happened, there was a spotlight flashed on their balance sheet. They just had too much risk. Mm -hmm. And so the regulators came in to reduce that risk. So the simple question is that private credit came in and stepped in the shoes of banks and really took market share. But this scale was much larger than anyone could have anticipated. But for me, what what I think about a lot is the, the more profound effect is the talent transfer. The talent transfer from the banks that went to the credit providers, the private credit providers, that set the stage for, for this mass you know, growth in, in private credit. So let's talk about talent a little bit. One of the things I know
1: your firm is proud of is more than half of your workforce has been with the firm for five years or longer. So first, I'm assuming that's not typical in your space. And second, I have to ask, uh, what contributed to that sort of retention?
2: Yeah, I'm very proud, and I think we're very proud of that fact, and I think it is very atypical. But the credit really goes to so many people at, at Magnetar. You know, we're a global firm, but I think with a Midwestern ethos. Mm-hmm. So it's work hard, stay humble, be a good teammate, be a good person. And I think if we can consistently demonstrate those qualities – will attract people who value them, and it's, it's a virtuous circle. And what's incredible about the firm is when, we get, when we're focused, how much we can get done. So I'll give you a simple example. We started a summer internship program several years ago, and we started with two interns, and we built a program around them. And this last summer, we had 60 interns for a 200-person organization. You know, it, it's pretty humbling when you think about all the exceptional people around Magnetor and how much we can get done. So
1: one of the things we've been hearing a lot about as big companies try and get their staff back in the office uh, five days a week is corporate culture. Tell us a little bit about what is differentiating Magnetar from uh, a cultural perspective perspective. You know, starting
2: with Evanston, Illinois, not a lot of private credit shops in the neighborhood. That's true. You know, first principles it's always about integrity, but I think for most tenured firms integrity is, is is high. But for us the North Star is always creating the best portfolios to deliver to our clients. And we really have two foundational points there. One is we run a very flat organization. And secondly, we thought a lot about alignment. So on the flat organization, it doesn't matter who has the right answer. We know we're trying to reach the right answer. So I'll, I'll take our investment committees as an example. We, we have bi-weekly investment committees and it's not the top two or three people that sit on the investment committee. We have 120 people in that meeting you know, every two weeks. Wow. And we really want people to voice opinions. Right, and that's how we're going to get to the best answer. You know, we talk about it internally a lot. We're trying to manage investments by consensus. And so, if, especially in private credit, if someone doesn't like something, we can change it. We can change, you know, what a structure looks like. And so, we'll get to something that, where we actually get consensus. You know, on the alignment point, it really goes back to not giving individual capital allocations, but incentivizing people to create the best portfolio. So you asked about retention before. I think the reason why people stay at Magnetar long term is because they believe in these philosophies and they believe if we get to the right portfolio that everyone wins in the long term. Huh, really very
1: interesting. So we only have you for, for a limited amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests, starting with, tell us what you've been streaming these days. What's been keeping you entertained, either video or audio, Netflix or, or podcast? What, what's keeping you entertained?
2: Yeah, I think this will be different than, than most of the people that sit on this show. But for me, it's been Flow Sports. Flow Sports. Flow Sports. So I have my older son is in between high school and college right now mm-hmm. and he's playing hockey in juniors for a year and so all of his games are on Flow Sports so, Christy and my son, Jake, and I sit around and, and watch every game together.
1: What, what, is he, what positions does he play?
2: He plays defense. Huh. It's been a lot of fun. F-
1: it, Flow Sports, is that a, a, like a YouTube channel, an internet
2: channel? How do you it, find that? It, it, we pull it up on Apple TV or on our phone, and and yeah, it's it's been great for, for a lot of youth sports. Huh, interesting. And, and then on the podcast side, this podcast aside, obviously. You never
1: have to bring this podcast up. Of course.
2: Right. So... I listened to one by Larry Bernstein, What Happens Next? And he's been doing it since, since COVID. And it's sort of six minutes of you know, really relevant topics that come out every weekend. What Happens Next? I'm going to check that out. I love the idea of these, having done long
1: form for a decade, I love the idea of 5, 10, 12 minutes, and you're
2: done. And there's yeah. something very
1: appealing about that. Um, let's talk about your mentors
2: who helped to shape your career. You know, it always starts with their parents, and then you know, football coaches like like Larry Kimbaum. But I mentioned Dave Bunning before. I think most people would say, you know, I'm a product of of his teachings over time. Huh. Interesting. How about books? What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? You know, I always like Michael Lewis books. We we had him at, at one of our our offsites uh, a few years ago. You remember, remember this book as one of my favorites. You know, Memos from the Chairman" by Alan Greenberg. Sure, that, that was a great book. Ace Greenberg, right? Ace Greenberg. From uh, Bear Stearns. Correct. And what was so interesting about his book is, you know, he's running the firm, but he's really in the minutia of every detail. It, it was very interesting,
1: in- including the uh, paper clips, recycling in- the paper clips, <laughs> every expense. So let me interrupt you one second and say, I was at a lunch just with you know three three people at a table and he came in and sat like a table or two over and the whole meal i mean this was later in his life the whole meal was a parade of people coming in to genuflect in front of him and just <laughs> pay their respects it was like the pope was having lunch i i, I don't know how well you know of him and yeah. and the book certainly is is kind of you know you don't get a sense of how other people perceived him but
2: Fascinating guy. I met him when he was at Bear Stearns, and I felt the same way. It was, he's a he was a special person. What other books are you reading? Anything else you want to mention? So my my, my colleague and the head of our London office, Alan Chaffron, recommended the book "The Missing Billionaires," mm-hmm. and the reason I just started, but the reason it's interesting is it's it's very focused on. Asset allocation and mistakes in asset allocation, and how much that can cost a portfolio over time. So it has a lot of parallels to the way we think about asset allocation at Magnetar. Huh? Really interesting. Our final
1: two questions: What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad interested in the career in either uh, private credit, alts, fixed income, uh, any of the areas you specialize in?
2: It's uh, it's what we think about for the firm. I know what I what I tell my kids would be it's people and platform. You need to be around good, integrous people that are great mentors, and the platform needs to be growing over time. So each seat should be worth more than the person in it. Huh? Interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing, of credit, of risk management uh, today that you wish you knew when you were first getting started 30 years or so ago? Yeah, this may be an atypical answer, but I think about luck versus skill a lot more than I ever did before. If you make a decision today and don't have an outcome for 10 years, you don't really know if you were good at it or not, right? Whether you won or lost. If you're able to have a much faster feedback loop, now you can really hone your skills and understand whether you're, whether you're making you know good decisions or bad decisions. And so I think for me, and as we look at people's track records, we really try to think about how often do they get to make a, make the same decision? And what's the process around that decision? And how different is it over time?
1: Very, very interesting. I have a book for you, but I'm going to bet you've already read it. Michael Mobison's book. I have not. Please. Separating skill from luck in investing, business, and sports. Like that is right up your alley. That is. Thank you. you. you will, and, and he's a fascinating author and really a fascinating book. I would bet you you would appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you, David, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David Snyderman. He is the global head of alternative credit and fixed income and managing partner at Magnetar, a $15 billion multi-strategy, multi-product, alternative investment management firm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 500 or so we've had. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Bloomberg, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, be sure and check out my new podcast, At The Money, 10 minutes each week with an expert discussing a topic that's relevant to you and your money. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps me put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Anna Luke is my producer Sean Russo is my head of research. Sage Bauman is our head of podcasts. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.